There have been only four world empires in history, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and they followed one right after another. And this image of the man summarizes those four empires and everything that they stood for. And it's of a man, I believe, because it shows how man-centered those cultures really were. It's uh, really an image of what humanism is all about. Man as the measure of all things. And I tell you, uh, Western uh, culture and education has been profoundly influenced by those four empires. Uh, some call it classical education, others call it humanistic education. And don't get me wrong, there's a great deal that is good in that culture. We're going to be looking in a moment at verse 31 and how it talks about how awesome and how uh, much splendor there was in that image. But I want you to notice, first of all, verse 35, where it says that Christ is going to make all of that, every trace of that image to vanish away. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Not a trace of them was found, it says. What has Jerusalem to do with Athens? That was a phrase that uh, was... Uh, brought up by an early church father who was struggling with, how do we live in this world that is so contrary to God's Word? And there have been many different answers that have been given to that question. What does Jerusalem, what does the church have to do with Athens or Rome or Babylon? What does it have to do with the humanistic cultures that we face? And some have said, well, we're supposed to escape from culture and not get defiled by that culture. Go off in a monastery as much as you can, seclude yourself from that world, and of course, we do not believe that because the Scripture calls us to disciple the nations. And uh, this chapter itself, chapter 2, shows a head-on conflict and confrontation between two worldviews, the Christian worldview and the humanistic one. Uh, others uh, have given the answer that we should identify with culture uh, unfortunately, uh, liberal churches, and there have been other churches as well, have sought to do this, uh, trying to identify with what they have called best, that which is best in the culture. And uh, sometimes their churches just looks like the most current fashion in the world. There's not a whole lot of difference between the church and, and the, the culture that uh, they have been called to. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there was another uh, viewpoint, uh, especially Thomas Aquinas uh, talked about this, but there were many others who picked it up and to this day hold to this viewpoint. They said, okay, we can't escape, we can't identify, but we do need to have some impact. Let's try to synthesize the best of the wisdom from the world and the best of the wisdom from Christ. And they say, after all, all truth is God's truth. You know, this is a responsibility that we have is to look at all truths. Now, the problem with that is how do we determine what is true? There's got to be some authority, and there's a conflict of authorities in this kind of a viewpoint. Who determines? Is it the Bible that determines truth, or is it something else? And if there's a synthesis, uh, what's happened over and over again is that the clear, clear teaching of Scripture has been compromised so that people can either appear respectable in the eyes of the world or not get thrown to the lion's den, like what happened to Daniel later on in this book. 
And uh, so you've got people who hold to the day-age theory or hold to natural law or hold to psychologized preaching or on and on. They've tried to synthesize the truth, but they've ended up compromising the very scriptures they're trying to synthesize. A fourth group of people have recognized the problems with escaping, the problems with identifying. They said, okay, we've seen there's problems with synthesizing, uh, but they wanted to hold on to both. They said, we don't know how to reconcile the two kingdoms, but let's just try to live in both. Let's try to honor and respect both of those kingdoms. And they've tried to paradoxically hold them in tension. One of our professors at Covenant College, uh, Charles Anderson, describes this fourth view this way. The followers of Luther soon made his dualism into an orthodoxy and consequently domesticated the gospel. In other words, the way to ease the tension between the two kingdoms is to make the gospel into a kind of civil religion. And so the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ can exist alongside of each other. Indeed, it would sometimes seem that religion exists to preserve culture and give it an air of respectability. This kind of conservatism is typical of the God and country mentality of much of American fundamentalism. And he points out, you know, these, these people don't want to get too radical. Let's not bring, you know, the whole of God's law into politics or into science or into other areas. Uh, they want it just to be comfortable in both kingdoms. But again, they have failed to apply the scriptures to the world. Now, the Reformed people have, to the best of their ability, tried to follow the fifth model, and I believe it's Daniel's model of transformation. We are not of the world, but we are certainly in the world, and God expects us to be transforming this world. This is my father's world, not Satan's world, and he expects us to be taking every square inch for King Jesus. Uh, it is a responsibility that he has given to us. And... Uh, uh, there are times in history when our success in this has been mixed. Uh, in our day, even in Daniel's day, there was a great deal of success in impacting culture, but it was not total. But this chapter gives us a promise of a coming time when there will be every trace of humanism will give way to Christ's lordship. Now, so far in chapter 2, we've uh, seen that uh, humanism by its very nature has to crumble just because of the departures from God's truth that, that are there. It has to crumble. And uh, sometimes it can happen overnight, where in spite of power, in spite of uh, finances and all of the, the things that they have in their favor, they do not have the answers to the crises they face in life. And like Daniel, we need to be prepared to stand in the gap and to provide those answers for our culture. Now, what happens frequently, why Christians are not ready, is because they've opted for humanism. In fact, sometimes they will confuse the greatness of the image of humanism with Christianity, with some of the things. And I want you to look, first of all, at the splendor with which this is described in verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. Here is God using words like great, splendor, excellent, awesome to describe this humanistic culture. You see, God does not at all deny that there was beauty in Greek art. He did not at all deny that there was uh, benefits from uh, Babylonian technology or benefits in, in Roman culture. Even the New Testament benefited from some of the things that were in the Roman culture. And yet he does not point us to the image 
He does not point us to humanism for our source of a world and life view. He points us to Jesus Christ, the rock who was cut without hands. It's the original source of all wisdom. And there will come a time when there will be a distinctively Christian culture, not just where Christians borrow from the world and incorporate it into their worldview, but a distinctively Christian world and life view where every aspect of life that formerly had come under the dominion of humanism will one day be under the dominion of Christ. Verse 35 and 44, the removal of every trace of the statue. Verse 35 talks about the wind of the Holy Spirit carrying away so there's no trace of them left. So what frequently makes people confused when they're trying to know how do we interact with our world is seeing that there is greatness in a humanistic culture. There is some degree of greatness. Because humanism, uh, to the degree that it borrows from eternal principles, from a Christian world and life view, to that degree, it will have greatness. And to the degree that it abandons that, it's going to lose that greatness. You just take a look at medicine or science. Uh, those two disciplines. Uh, they would be impossible to exist if humanism was consistent in pitching every eternal principle that God gives in His Word. If they were consistent with their world and life view. If it was a random chance universe, then there could be no order. There could be no arrangement or no loss. There couldn't be science or medicine. And by the way, you you look at what's developing in some of the new age science and some of the new age uh, medicine, and you will see some really bizarre things that they are putting forward, Uh, things like what came out of pagan Egypt and other areas. Again, because they are abandoning the Western world and life view, which was so shaped by, by Christianity. So as I said, to the extent that it abandons eternal principles, to that extent it's going to be what verse 39 calls inferior. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Okay, there are degrees of goodness in in cultures. Some are are better than others. Some are worse off than others. Um, Many commentators have pointed out that Medo-Persia was not inferior in military power, in glory, in the extent of the empire. In fact, each one of these succeeding empires became stronger and stronger militarily. Uh, It was inferior because it was moving further and further away from God's standards. Calvin said, We see then that Cyrus's kingdom is not called inferior through having less splendor or opulence in human estimation, but because the general condition of the world was worse under the second monarchy, as men's vices and corruptions increase more and more. See, if there was ever a time when the world was getting worse and worse and worse, it was in the days from Daniel leading up to the time of Christ, not in our day. And certainly America's getting worse. But you look at the world, people say the world is getting worse. The world is in a far better state today than it was under Nero. There are far more Christians today than there were at the time of Christ. I think if you're looking at history, generally speaking, you cannot say the world is in a worse state today than it was in the time of Christ. What this passage is indicating is there is a deterioration down to the time of Christ from gold to silver to bronze to iron to clay. And if you just look at history, just see toward the cross, a downward slant and upward from the cross, there is, generally speaking, things are going upward by Christ's grace. Now that's an overview, and I want to dive in to look at the nature of the conflict. And we're not going to cover everything in those verses, 
in fact, I'm probably going to be covering too much uh, this morning. This is going to be much more of a teaching lesson than it is some of the preaching I've done in the past on Daniel. But I want you to bear with me because this really is a key, key passage to understanding Daniel. So uh, we're going to try to uh, go through a few of the principles. And if you're interested in a much more detailed outline, I could maybe pass that on to you sometime. The conflict. It is an all-out war for total dominion of all the earth. An all-out war. Because of Israel's failure to be salt and light, that was a responsibility that they had. We saw in chapter 1, verse 2, that God himself cast Israel out to be trodden underfoot of men. God gave them over to bondage. And if you look at verses 38 through 39, you'll see how pervasive this dominion of humanism was over the earth. It says, And wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven. He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. And in the next empire, we see the same thing. In the last phrase, it talks about the rule over all of the earth. Uh, This was the goal of humanism, total dominion over everything. Whether you're looking at environmentalism or anything that man does or anything that the beasts do, total dominion over everything. Now, the point I want to make is God has exactly the same goal. It's not just Satan. God is not going to have time sharing where they can have, you know, a little bit of space here and God's going to have a little bit of space later. God is after total dominion uh, for Christ. The New Testament quotes Psalm 8 as being fulfilled in Christ. And I want you to listen to the similarity of language to what was given to Nebuchadnezzar and what is given to Christ. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. You see how everything that humanism has dominated in has been given to Christ for Christ to reclaim by his grace. Verse 35 says, his kingdom will fill the earth. (coughs) Last part of verse 44 says, it shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, to me, those are incredibly encouraging words. There's no question about the fact that this passage describes both humanism and Christianity's having greatness, but who has more greatness? Obviously, Christianity that has more greatness. Uh, This passage describes both having worldwide dominion. But only Christianities will last. Both crush and replace the previous kingdoms, but only Christianity will never be replaced. Both have times of overlap where one nation continued to exist while the other was an empire, and that happens with Christianity. It's not overnight that these other empires are replaced, but only Christianity will never be replaced. And so there are similarities in this chapter, but there are also major, major um, differences. One difference that I'd like to highlight is um, of how these uh, kingdoms start off and how they end. Here, humanism starts off as a glorious image. I mean, it's just there, and it degenerates to the point where it is dust and chaff to be blown away. The Christian kingdom, on the other hand, starts off not glorious, not big, starts off as a small stone, perhaps not very observable, perhaps appearing powerless, 
and not anything very significant, but miraculously it grows into a great mountain and it finally fills the whole earth. And I think that is the difference between power religion and true religion. Power religion wants to impose things from the top down, instant success. We want it overnight. True religion is patient. True religion depends upon God's grace and has leavened, it transforms, it leavens society. Yes, it has impact upon politics, but it doesn't rely upon politics. It relies upon the Lord God. Uh, Verse 45 describes the stone as being cut without hands. In other words, it's referring to God's work. This is something supernatural that we depend upon, not just our skills and our abilities. Uh, It describes humanism as temporal, Christianity as eternal. Humanism as defeated, Christianity as undefeated. Uh, Verse 44, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So first of all, we've seen that there's a danger that Christians can have of um, failing to uh, take the conquest for Christ because they are so enamored with the glory of the image and failing to realize how even the good things that they are taking are used by the humanists to promote humanism rather than to promote what God wants. Uh, Secondly, we've seen that these two kingdoms are in conflict for total conquest. And that is what Christianity is about. The Great Commission is not fulfilled until every nation is discipled not just some people within the nation. Thirdly, we saw that God's approach to dominion and man's are totally different. Uh, Grace does not approach it in the same way that power religion does. But fourthly, I want to look at when it is that God reigns. In a moment, we're going to be seeing Christ's kingdom is established in the first century. But don't think that that's when God started ruling. You know, we might be tempted to think that uh, God's reign is manifested when there is a Christian dominance, but God says He has always reigned. He's always been in charge. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, God was the one who, for the purifying of His people, sent them into exile into Babylon. It was God's doing. <clears throat> and uh, He says much the same here in verses 37 through 38. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. Notice it's not Satan who gave it to him. God gave it. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. Babylon could have absolutely no authority if God did not grant them that authority. And that was true of every other empire. In the fourth empire, when Christ was captured and he was taken before Pilate, Pilate says, don't you know that I have authority to crucify you or to release you? Christ says, you could have no authority at all against me unless it was given to you from above. See, when we live, and I think presently we are living in a humanistic culture, but when we live in a period that could be described like that image was, God is not in heaven wringing his hands and saying, oh, things are just going to pot. It's so terrible. Things are out of control. No, God reigns. He is in control of that. He is allowing the humanism even to triumph for periods of time for the purification and for the strengthening of his people. God has an eternal kingdom. So don't think that we're talking here about the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. There are some amillennialists, not all, but some 
uh, who say that it's talking about the kingdom established in eternity. Well, that's God's eternal kingdom. God has always reigned. It isn't established then. We're talking about the mediatorial kingdom of Jesus Christ where he is reclaiming all things through his atonement to himself. And I want to take a look at the nature of that kingdom. First of all, it does not have its origin in this world, and yet it impacts this world. Look at verse 34. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands. Okay, without hands, emphasizing the fact this is supernatural. This is something that is done by God. It comes from heaven. But even though this is a a kingdom that is supernatural that comes from heaven, it impacts the earth. A lot of Christians miss that. That kingdom, it says in the next phrase, verse 34, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So it impacts this world. And I think we are going to have an imbalanced Christianity if we don't hold to both sides of that equation. There are some Christians who emphasize, well, it's something that's in the heavenlies. And it's really not something that we deal with in our day-by-day lives on earth. They're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. On the other hand, you have Christians who are so preoccupied with destroying this image that they're not taking the time to depend entirely upon the Lord God for what they're doing. And he's the only one who can give them success. And if you take that approach, at best, you're going to be frustrated. At worst, you're going to become a liberal, okay? Uh, You've got to have both sides. Total dependence upon the God of heaven who establishes his kingdom on earth. It impacts this earth. So don't think that the kingdom is something that's ethereal. It has an influence upon earth. Secondly, well, we'll skip over those. Verse 44 talks about it being powerful, all victorious, eternal. But let's read once more when that is set up in verse 44. It says, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. In the days of these kings, which kings is he referring to? Again, there are premillennialists who say that um, he's going to set up the kingdom in the future some future time to us. But you look at the immediate context, he's talking about the kings of the fourth empire, the kings of Rome. If it's set up in the future, it would by definition have to be part of a fifth or a sixth. It would be a fifth uh, kingdom on their, on their scheme. But it is part of the fourth kingdom. <clears throat> and what I want to do is give you a little bit of a history lesson. And we're going to start in verse 37 and just outline for you what the different stages of these uh, humanistic empires were. First of all, Babylon had an emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king over many kings. And so there were several kings in that empire. Verse 37 says, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And in the the bottom of uh, verse 38 it says, You are this head of gold. So Babylon was the first part of the image, and um, then each of the succeeding empires similarly had an emperor who ruled over various kings. It says, verse 39, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. The second one deals with the silver on the chest, silver chest and arms, and by the way, the two arms represent the two sides of the kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, two different peoples, and yet they're united together in one empire. He goes on, he says, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. That's a reference to Greece. And again, each of these empires having kings in them under the emperor, and the same was true of Rome. 
which is described in verse 40 and following. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And by the way, uh, it should be pointed out, Rome was much more ruthless in putting down rebellions, much more ruthless in the way it dealt with peoples than the previous um, empires were. They talked about their peace that they established. Well, one ancient writer uh, said, yeah, peace. He was making mockery of it. He says, they create a desert and call it peace. Uh, it was through destruction. But that's what it's referring to here, the crushing. And uh, there's a number of verbs that are, are put in here to show the, the severity of this kingdom. Well, it goes on and he shows in verses 41 the deterioration of Rome to the point where it breaks apart and there's no empire to replace Rome. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom, which kingdom? That's the kingdom he's just been talking about, the fourth kingdom, shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay... They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And that is a beautiful, we won't take the time to go into the various phrases there, but it's a beautiful description of the deterioration of Rome over history. Now that is the context then for verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Which kings? That's the kings of the Roman Empire. The ten toes, I believe, represented the ten kings who sat over the ten imperial provinces of Rome. And there's only one period of history when that has ever happened. Uh, He talks about uh, the ten kings by referring to them as ten horns on an animal later on in Daniel. Revelation 17 refers to ten horns as being the ten kings of Rome. And so there is no question... In my mind here, that Christ's kingdom came during the time of the first century, and it has been growing ever since. And the New Testament identifies Christ as being that stone which grows into a kingdom. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 21. There's five New Testament passages that uh, talk about Christ being the stone, but uh, let's take a look at uh, Matthew 21. and verse 42 and following Jesus said to them did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes therefore I say to you the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it and whoever falls on this stone will be broken but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder It will grind him to powder. Christ is the stone that grinds all humanism to powder. And I believe Christ is the key to understanding this passage. All of history flows toward Christ as the only solution for its problems and flows away from Christ and his transforming power. Uh, Verse 44, maybe I'll just quickly mention, uh, I I believe refers to the incarnation. Daniel... In verse 44, uh, it it indicates that uh, uh, Christ, actually it's verse 45, uh, Christ came out of a mountain. Okay, he's cut without hands out of a mountain, and I believe a reference to Mount Zion, 
He came from Israel, but he's not just like any other Jew who would have come from Israel. He was cut without hands. And so it's talking about the supernatural character of Christ coming out of Israel. It's talking about the incarnation and this whole kingdom that flows from Christ has that character of being cut without hands. And I think I want to end with that. It's a good note to end on, that this kingdom is cut without hands. It is not what our hands accomplish that produces the righteousness of Christ. It is not what our hands produce and accomplish that produces the destruction of humanism. We need to be continually cast upon the Lord in our activism, continually cast upon the Lord in our attempts to influence culture, recognizing apart from His supernatural working, nothing is power and enabling that we can go and disciple the nations. And if that was not encouraging enough, He ends the Great Commission by saying, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ is with us. He has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, any kingdom we might build or or church we might build, uh, yeah, the gates of hell may prevail against it, but those are defensive mechanisms. Christ is saying, he is on the offensive. Satan is on the defensive. We're going to even be breaking down the gates of hell, as it were, his kingdom and gaining the triumph for his cause. And when you grow discouraged and tired over the effort of trying to influence our our society, don't be looking at your own puny resources. Of course we can't do it on our own, but God can and he will because he has promised. And he has promised that he will eventually disciple through our efforts all of the nations so that not a trace of humanistic statue will be left. And this may be totally new to some of you. This may seem really strange. You've maybe been taught something entirely different, but I challenge you to read and reread that chapter and some of the later chapters, the visions that come in Daniel, and tell me if the church really has been destined to failure. I do not believe it has. It has been destined to victory in history. Lastly, remember that Christ does not win with a big splash. You know, again, we like things to be instant, but he started off humbly as a common stone, unobserved, apparently powerless, but by the power of his spirit, this stone miraculously grows and it fills the earth. And he wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. If he wanted us to walk by sight, he'd start off with a bang. So it'd be easy to believe, but he wants us to walk by faith. And you know, it takes faith. When we look out at our culture, many times it seems like, Lord, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of that image has vanished away. There's so much humanism out there and it looks like that it's a big, big, big structure and we're just this little tiny stone. And what God reminds us of, it doesn't matter how small you are. What matters is the power of the God who throws that stone at the image. God can take the victory in this world. He can enable the Great Commission to be completely filled. And it's my prayer that each one of you would have the faith to believe God for that. Amen.